My name's Jared, for those of us that are meeting for the first time, and my treat to get to launch this series today and talk about the three gifts that are under the tree. If you're a guest with us today, uh, our our real hope and our intention and our prayer has been that this is just a a really helpful uh, and special time for you. And for those of us that have been around here for a few decades, we've come to expect that the same thing's going to happen for us as well. Let me tell you a story. This is funny. It was a couple of years ago, there was a limo driver in Anaheim, California. He was flagged down by a passenger who hopped in with an unusual request. He said, I want to go to Portland, Oregon. The limo driver confirmed and brought him to Portland, dropped him off. The fare was $2,216. Yeah. But what was crazy was the tip, $20,000 tip. And uh, the driver was not like some of you or me. He actually objected and said, that's way too much. That's too much. And the passenger said, nope, that's the deal. $20,000 trip. Well, trip, tip. I think that's a little crazy. Unless it's grace. Grace is getting more than we deserve. And boy, did he ever. The first Christmas was really messy Don't let little creches or ornaments or cultivated trees throw you off. Don't let scented candles and sweet, wonderful flavored chocolates throw you off track. I'm a farm boy, folks. It was in a barn. There were noisy, smelly animals. There were unmucked stalls. There was a a dirty trough cleaned out, hay thrown in, working around the soiled hay to find some that wasn't, crib for a baby. Not exactly what you would expect, the birth of a king. And at the end of that king's life, it's not an ending that you would expect either. Oh, there was a tree involved, but it was a tree that wasn't neat and tidy. It was a tree that he was stretched out on. It's called a cross and The reason we have kind of an overgrown Charlie Brown looking Christmas tree up here this year is if you really want to find the gifts, the presents that are under the tree, you've got to go to that tree. You can't can't go to that tree. And we love Christmas, and I'm all about the cultural thing. I have a blast. In fact, Brad, I don't even judge you, buddy, for messing with your sweet little girls that believe in the Santa thing. I don't... I don't know what you're going to do about that, you stinking liar dad. I don't know what. (laughs) We're not on some kind of a tirade here. And I think when you, if you go to Starbucks, you tell them their name, your actual name, so that they have an opportunity to get to know you and you have some relationship. You know what I mean here. We're not on some kind of a goofy culture deal because we understand the real deal. Bruce, it must have pained you to fix this tree because it started out a beautiful thing. And Bruce, you ended up with one ugly looking deal over here, buddy, exactly as ordered. You know, the cross was not a symbol of Christianity during the first 100 or 150 years. In fact, it was in the second century that it began being used as a symbol, but it was actually several hundred years later that the cross became a dominant symbol of Christianity. And if you think about it, it is a little grotesque, isn't it? It was the symbol of capital punishment. It's kind of like you deciding to 
buy a necklace for uh, your uh, loved one this year, and it has a syringe for lethal injection on it. Hmm? Or, or an electric chair. That's the graphic nature of this messy deal. It's a symbol of death. Why in the world have Christians decided to take the death penalty symbol as the symbol of the most amazing gift of grace and life in the entire world? And that's what this series of three weeks is about. Three gifts under the tree. I'd like for you to look and read with me our major text for this series. It actually is Paul's last statement to a church that he had started and he had written back two or three letters to. This is called 2 Corinthians. We might have lost the letter in the middle. And it's his closing words. And he says this. I'm going to read it through the first time. Second time, I want you to read the three letters, words that are bold. Third time, we'll read it all together. I'll go first. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Second time, you'll read the three bold words. May the of the Lord Jesus Christ and the of God and the of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Obviously, Paul was from the South here. All together, let's read it out loud and boldly. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Those are the three presents under the tree. God expressing himself, the fullness of who he is, in the most dramatic, game-changing, eternity-altering gifts that he could possibly get. Today, we're talking about the grace of the Lord Jesus. What is grace? Think about it in two parts. We'll put them together. One side of grace is that it is goodwill or favor. It's an attitude. When you think about God and you have just blown it, is that the attitude of God that you assume? That he's looking at you and say, I wish well for you. I extend favor to you. Some of us think God has another attitude toward us, a harsh, mean, intolerant, patient, running out of parent, a lot like some of us are from time to time. The attitude of grace is goodwill and favor. Secondly, there's an action associated with it, and it is grace that is freely and unconditionally given. So it's an attitude of goodwill and favor. The action is freely and unconditionally given. It's often defined as unmerited favor. Someone has once said this. I love this. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, while grace is getting what we don't deserve. Let me illustrate. One of the uh, couples who was on their way to uh, church for the 8 o'clock service this morning saw me come up next to them at a stoplight, and I knew that the uh, street Evergreen was going to go from four lanes to two, and so I made sure that I got in front of them, and I speeded to make sure that I got to church before they did, and it was only them that I noticed that they followed me in, and I said, look at that. I made like a leader. These people like the way I drove, and so they followed me to Evergreen. It's called speeding evangelism right there, yeah. Well, you know how much of that story is true, not the end part. There we go. So let's assume that I'm speeding. It's not a stretch. And I get pulled over by a cop, and he gives me a ticket. 
I deserve it. Justice served. Let's assume that instead he lets me off with a warning. That's mercy. Did not get what I deserved. But then let's assume that he gives me two 50-yard line tickets to the Super Bowl as a gift. That's grace. (laughs) Getting more that I deserved or what I didn't deserve. This is what the Bible says is the big deal. We are saved. Your eternity hinges on this fulcrum point. We are saved by grace. And it's not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Not of works, because none of us will be good enough to get to heaven on our own. Notice that this grace in our text was expressed in Jesus. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm going to ask you to turn your attention in a moment for our major text today from the Bible to the Gospel of John in the first chapter. And let me kind of tell you about what makes this so unique. Each of the four Gospel writers want to tell us about their preferred starting point of Jesus' life. So Matthew and and Luke want to tell us about Jesus' genealogy, his lineage, his parents, and the primary people around his birth, and details about the nativity. Mark is a man of action. He doesn't have time for all of that baby stuff. He wants Jesus taken on the devil. And so he just jumps in at Mark chapter 1, gets Jesus on the scene, baptized, filled with the Spirit, going to a synagogue, reading the Scripture, and driving out a demon. And then he sends Jesus to the desert to take on the devil himself. That's Mark. You're going to get a lot of good, get the devil beat up in Mark. I love that. John takes a whole other approach to his introduction of Jesus. And he starts out by going cosmic on us. Way back to the beginning. And the philosophers that are out here are going to love this. Here's John's perspective. John chapter 1, verse 1 says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's the question. Who's the Word? It's Jesus expressing God, the second member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, why do we need a Word to get to know God? Think about Word for a moment. The Greek is the word logos. It's the big idea for the Word. It's the complete idea. It's the 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 deep package of information. But don't get hung about the Greek thing. Just think about what is a word. You have a wonderful idea in mind, but the person that you want to share that idea with has no idea because she cannot read your mind. I won't go there. So much fun. I just <laughs> teed that up. I just I got it. Here we go. So you have this idea. You want it expressed so that They can understand it as well. What do you do? You use your words, as moms and dads say. And you take the word, which is a symbol of the idea, and you express it, and the other person says, now I get it. I know what you're thinking. Now we're sharing this idea. So let's go back to God. God is big. He is real. He's eternal. He's fantastic. He's powerful. He is the creator. He's everywhere all of the time, but he's invisible. And you can't see him, you can't hear him, and you can't know him until he expresses himself. 
in seeable, hearable, and knowable ways. And he decided to do that by sending his word. And he expressed himself completely and entirely in his son, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Notice in John 1.14 it says, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And now we've seen something. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Wow. That's where John starts. He doesn't talk about a stable. He doesn't talk about a trip. He doesn't talk about taxes. He doesn't talk about angels. He doesn't talk about stars. He talks about in the beginning. This baby had a beginning before the beginning. And as God himself, he chose to come to earth. God became a human. We call this the incarnation. Now, this is tricky. What does in mean? It means in. Greek scholars out here, absolutely (laughs) spot on. You've nailed it. In means in. Carnation. The Greek word carna, carna, excuse me, the Latin word means flesh. So a, uh, a person who eats meat is a carnivore, right? Uh, chili con carne is chili with meat. It's with flesh. Incarnation means in flesh. So God chose to come and live in flesh. So Jesus is God in a body. And now God expressed himself in a way that we can see and we can hear, and we can touch, and we can experience. And what did we see when we looked at God in a body? Grace and truth. Wow. In this John's preamble and opening, he introduces us to three game changers that I want to consider with you. The first one comes in verse 14, where it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Would you read this phrase with me? Full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. What do you mean when you say someone is full of something? That is a rhetorical question that I would only trust a few of you to answer in public and polite community. Generally, we mean that that person has a quality that's characteristically true about them. So if I were to say to you, Brad is full of mischief, you would say, Jared's telling the truth. Hang around Brad for a while and mischief is going to appear. If I were to say, Marley is full of joy, You would say, that's true. She is a joyful person. If I were to say to you, Jared's full of baloney, some of you would say, I know what that means. You should listen carefully to what he says and take some of it with a grain of salt. When we say someone is, Anne once said, got off an elevator. I heard her say to our boss that he was full of it. 
and she did not qualify what the it was. That day, Ann, I was in fear for our jobs right there. When we say someone is full, we are speaking about what generally represents who they are. And here's the deal. John, on knowing certain terms, wants you to know this today because most of you don't believe this very much. He is full of grace and full of truth. Wow. Hmm. As a matter of fact, I think the stories of the Gospels and particularly the stories of Jesus that we find in John's gospel are stories that are full of grace. It's amazing. In fact, think about the very first miracle that John records. If you have Bibles or devices or later when you go home, check it out. You go into chapter 2 and all of a sudden you are faced with a miracle that John's gospel exclusively tells us about. And it's a miracle at a wedding. Now, when Mark, Jesus, the devil taker, honor, gospel, writer, action guy, records the first miracle, it's casting out a demon. When John, the full of grace and truth, gospel, writer, guy, records the first miracle, he goes to a wedding reception. Hmm. And you remember the story. (laughs) It's so fun. So he goes to the wedding. He does his first miracle. It's actually a party. The wine runs out. Today, that would be no big deal. Somebody would jump in the car and go down to the store and buy some wine. If you're like me, you'd probably load up at New Seasons with some carbonated water or whatever your beverage of choice is there. The deal for us, no big deal. Go down and get some more, bring it back. The reception moves on. An hour later, everyone goes home. Not so. First century, not in Palestine. The wedding went on sometimes for days. And listen, it was the major social faux pas to invite people to your wedding and not deliver on the reception. So you can imagine what it might be like. It's your wedding, and you send out an invitation to hundreds of people, and you say, you know, don't eat anything before you come. Bring your appetite. We're catering a full sit-down meal, and everybody goes off to the reception hall, and they're all sitting down, and you show up, and there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. There's no appetizers. There's no nothing. You call the caterer. The caterer says, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot. Too late for the caterer to do anything about it. You go out and grab the microphone and you say, sorry, folks, go home. You would have unhappy folks. And frankly, in that culture, it would have just been devastating for that couple. No wonder Jesus' mother Mary comes to him and says, you know, help him, help these guys out. And he says, she says to the servants, you, you talk to my boy, you know, I'll be here. And you know the story. There were six ceremonial stone water pots used for ceremonial religious Ritual cleansing, and Jesus told the servants to fill them up, and then he told the servant to dip out and take it over to the head caterer guy and the MC, and he tasted the wine, and he's blown away, and he goes, wow, and he talks to the bridegroom, and he says, most people serve the good stuff first, and after people have had a little too much, then they break out the cheap stuff in the box, but man, you've reversed the thing here on us, and the bad stuff, yeah, this is the good stuff. Can you imagine the look on the groom's face? Now, here's the deal of the miracle. Over the last 2,000 years, scholars have discovered all kinds of deep stuff in there. And it's there. I grant it. It's there. Likening those stone water pots to a symbol of the old law and religion and Moses' prescriptions. And now the new fresh life of Jesus and the Spirit has been poured in. And out of those forms now flows the best life that ever was and the fulfillment of all of the old and all the change that Jesus was going to bring. All of that's there. But I got to tell you that all of that was missed by a couple who had a sheer miracle of grace with Jesus coming to their wedding party and saving it from being a disaster. 
It is first and foremost in that moment a miracle of grace. And John wants you to get how mundane God's interest is in your life to the smallest details. He launches with a real-life story. Hmm. How about this Jesus full of grace doing things like that for you? Not because you deserve them or earned them, but because he's full of grace and it just spoils out. I think almost every story in the Gospels talks about this. When, when he miraculously fed a crowd of thousands of people from a small boy's lunch, it wasn't because they'd earned it. They didn't work that day. Many of them probably played hooky from work that day, and they just came out and hang out and stood or sat and listened to him teach. Jesus did all the work, but they were hungry. It was a long way to go to get food, and not only did Jesus give them free teaching, he gave them a free meal. It was just an act of grace. Or when the Pharisees attacked Jesus because he was hanging out with the wrong people. You know, he had a tendency to do that, you know. And Jesus told the Pharisees three quick stories. One about a shepherd who made sure that the 99 sheep were safely tucked in at night and went out in the dark to look for the one who had wandered off. Or for a woman who did a deep clean on her house trying to find one lost coin. Or a father who waited for the wayward son to come home who had squandered half of the family estate to welcome him back. And Jesus' point was, I'm hanging out with the very people that my father loves and sent me to find. Pure grace. Or how about a woman caught in the act of adultery? I have no idea what happened to the guy. It was the double standard in that culture. But boy, was she going to get heck for that, like losing her life potential. And she was drugged forward by an angry mob of men who were going to kill her by throwing rocks at her. And Jesus intervenes and he says to the crowd, the one among you that's without sin, you can throw that first stone. And one by one, the angry crowd from older to younger began to leave until it's Jesus and the woman. And he looks at her and he asks the question, where are your accusers? Can you hear the wonder in her voice when she said, sir, there's no one? And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. She came that day expecting to be condemned, and instead, she was forgiven. She thought she was going to be punished, but she was pardoned. She came dragged in thinking this is the end. She left that day standing tall with a new beginning. That's sheer grace. And when he died on that cross, still full of grace, in dying breath said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Overflowing grace. Jets Jesus, full of grace and truth. And then the Bible says that that grace now has spilled over on us. Notice again in verse 16, it says, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. We've received grace upon grace. 
Hmm. I grew up near the Sandy Am River, and when I was a little kid, Green Peter Dam was being built. We would go up some Sunday afternoons and watch the construction, and then over the years following, the reservoir that had begun to fill with water. I'd like for you to have a similar visual, mental image of a beautiful river, of a dam and a reservoir that is long and deep and beautiful behind it. And that reservoir is full so that the floodgates spill over with water and everyone downstream enjoys the benefit, the blessing of that overflow. Downstream, there are families and homes that enjoy electricity to light and heat their homes. There's water to drink. There's uh, irrigation for uh, crops and fields. There's recreation. There's a park and a place to swim and a reservoir to go water skiing on in the summer. And there's places to fish downstream for those who like to fish. Here's the deal. As long as the reservoir is full, there's blessings spilling over for everyone downstream. That's what John is saying. The reservoir of Christ is so full of grace that until he runs dry, everyone downstreams is getting grace upon grace, one blessing after another splashed on them. And I don't think Jesus is going to run out of grace anytime soon. So the responsibility is on us to be thoughtful about those blessings, to list those blessings, to give thanks for those blessings on all of us. Helps me sometimes think about categories. Four come to mind. How about spiritual blessings? Salvation, faith, forgiveness, answered prayer, purpose, meaning, hope, eternal life, heaven, spiritual gifts, relationship with God, splashing all over you. How about physical blessings? Health, food, clean water, housing, clothing, relational blessings, family, friends, marriage for some, kids for some, neighbors, personal blessings. Maybe a job. Maybe abilities and talents, freedom, joy, opportunity to live in this nation that provides so much blessing and freedom for us. Blessings spilling all over. And it's all because of God's grace. John tells us that Jesus is full of grace and that his fullness has spilled over on us, one blessing after another. Jesus let loose a flood of grace and that grace reaches to you. So we've learned two things of the three that we wanna cover today. The first one is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And the second is that that grace spills over in one blessing after another on you. John wraps this together in an amazing compound sentence in verse 17. Let's take a look at it again. It says this, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Now, when you find a semicolon in a, a, a sentence, it generally means that it could have been written as two independent sentences. So it could have said, for the law was given through Moses, period. Grace and truth came through Jesus, period. But what the writer wants us to do is to blend those together because he is making a stark contrast. And it's a contrast of religion losing out 
to grace and truth. Here it is. A contrast between Moses and Jesus, between the law and grace, between religion and relationship, between trying harder and trusting him more. What a contrast. That's Christmas, full of grace and truth. Sometimes we say that religion is spelled D-O, do. And relationship with God is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Religion is your doing stuff. It's your meriting it. It's your getting it right. It's your doing enough. It's the balance weighing out on the positive scale at the end. Relationship with God through Christ says, I can never do enough. I can only receive what's done for me. Amazing grace. It's a stairs versus an elevator. A stairs requires that I go up my steps. An elevator says, get on with Jesus and he'll take you to the top. The stairs says, I will try my best and I hope at the end of my life, I'll get there. An elevator says, I can never get from here to there on my own. I must get on with Jesus and ride what he has done for me. Religion can be sophisticated and rather self-sufficient and arrogant. I have the capacity to know well enough, to do good enough, to be great enough, to work my way to God's level. It takes tremendous humility to come as a dependent sinner to the tree of Christ and accept his gift of grace It says, I have sinned, I am wretched, I have failed, I can never earn, never merit, never good enough. I must simply accept the gift of grace. That's what Jesus is full of. Let me wrap this third point and illustrate by telling two stories. The first one happened on April 26, 2008. The Western Oregon University women's softball team was playing the uh, Central uh, Washington University team in Ellensburg, Washington. It was in the second inning. Western Oregon senior Sarah Tuzlowski hit uh, her first home run of her college career. It was a three-run homer. Was the visiting team ever excited? She dropped her bat. She started for first base. She rounded to second, but she failed to tag first base. Caught the attention of the first base coach. He called her back. She turned around quickly, stunned. Everyone gasped as she collapsed to the ground, twisting her knee, crawling in pain, dragging her body back to first base to touch it. She had torn out an ACL. She's in pain. There are tears. The umpires are talking to her teammates that want to rush over, telling her, telling them, if you touch her, she's out. And instructing her coaches, if you put in a pinch runner, she's only going to be credited with, with a single. That's when Central Washington's first base player, 
Mallory Holtman, who happened to be the leading home run hitter in school history, turned to the umpire and said, would it be okay if we carried Sarah around the bases? Umpire said, sure. Sarah brought her friend Liz Wallace over. They picked Sarah up. They crossed their hands beneath her. They carried her to second base. They gently let her good leg down to tag second, and then third, and then home. As the home team, Western Washington, gave a standing ovation to the sportsmanship of their players. Later, when asked about her good deed, Mallory said, well, I think she deserved it. She hit the ball over the fence. She deserved to tag home. When Sarah was interviewed, she says, it's simply amazing. I only hope I would have done the same thing if I were in that situation. A sports writer who was there chronicling the game wrote, said, this can only be described as a moment of grace. I think he had it right. Grace. The Central Washington players gave Sarah a gift. What Sarah could not do for herself, tag every base, they helped her do. Here's the deal. Jesus is full of grace. He gave you the gift of what you could never do for yourself. Moses gave a law. Many bases. You and I simply could not consistently tag every base. That's religion. And Jesus came fulfilled the law, tagged every base, lived sinlessly without failure on your behalf and now in grace carries you to the very presence of God. Hmm. Now contrast that story with one that happened in Nebraska. Her name is Alexandra Flynn of Fremont, Nebraska. She was looking forward to her homecoming dance. She left her house in high spirits. She went to the high school gym. She had her ticket in hand, but she had forgotten her high school ID card. The man who knew her well that was admitting people in knew the law and said to her, I'm sorry, you can't come in. So she went back home. She and her mom looked for her ID. She couldn't find it. So her mom came back to the homecoming dance with her to vouch for her. And the man looked at the tickets, looked at the mom, looked at Alexandra and said, you can't come in. You have to have ID. Now, Alexandra Flynn of Fremont High was a student body president, played cello in the All-State Orchestra, was on the honor roll, was the school's leading cheerleader, and has spent countless hours decorating the gym for the homecoming dance. Did I mention that she was the homecoming queen? But she never did get in. Does somebody beside me think this is crazy? Nuts! Let her in! But if you're going to play by the legal rules, she did not touch every base. Sarah went home. The guy had it right in terms of the rules. Folks, you don't want to play religion and try to play relationship with God through the grace of Jesus at the same time. You don't. You don't want to think you do 10% and he does 100%. You do not want to go there. The guy at the door had it right. If you're going to play by the rules, you touch every base. You don't fail at all. And here's the deal. 
Not one of us in this room has touched every base. We know that. We get that. We'll never use the stairs and get there. And here's the good news. God through Christ is an awful lot more like the softball team at Central Washington University than he is like they die standing at the homecoming dance door. Jesus, the fullest expression of God we'll ever see in here, is full of grace and truth. He lets us in, not based upon our merit, but because of his favor. Now, before I conclude, I want to underscore this very important truth, because some people, even in the very first century, got this wrong. And they thought that grace was cheap because it was free. Oh, no, as you take the cross in your hand, this cross is way too new. It's way too smooth. It's way too, it's way too nice. But if you take the cross and push your fingers into its sharp edges on the 90-degree corners, you'll have some sensory sense there of, <coughs> of the toughness and the expense of this gift. Here's the deal. We will never earn our way to God's grace and relationship. But having received his grace, we are incredibly motivated to love and obey him. Of course, grace doesn't remove effort. But the effort is not to gain merit. But it's the effort that merit has already been granted through grace that causes and evokes in us a loving desire to then please God. It was written this well later in the New Testament. It says, listen, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's God's grace that makes us want to respond as a child to say, I want to obey and I want to love and I want to live like you. Let's conclude with these words. Words from Jesus recorded by Matthew and in the message translation, it's Jesus' invitation to you. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Come keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Wow. Come to Jesus. God is not an angry taskmaster looking down a long, bony, judgmental nose saying, harder, harder, faster, faster, more, more. No, he expressed himself in Jesus. He's already done it. You could never earn it. You could never merit it. He had to do it. And now we receive it. Get off the stairs. Get on the elevator. And some of you came to church today to get right with God. This is your day to do that. I'm going to lead in a prayer in just a moment, a prayer that all of us could pray. It's a simple prayer. It's a prayer of coming to receive God's grace. It's something like, God, I agree with you that I'm a sinner I have not touched every base. I have gone so far my own way. I have sinned. I receive your gift of grace. I'm not going to try to earn my way. I'm getting off the stairs. I come to receive your grace of forgiveness today. 
then here's his promise. If you confess your sin, he faithfully, every time to every person, will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you know there'll be another part of our prayer? The prayer is for the many of us who probably at some point in the past have made that commitment to follow Christ. But we, every, every week of our lives, we fit, we fight the tendency to get off the elevator and to get on the stairs. You know what it's like. We do it again. And we come to God, and we don't believe that his attitude is goodwill and favor. We think his attitude is snarky, impatient, and upset. And we start begging him on the basis of our merit, like promises for the future. If you forgive me now, I'll never do that again. You've just gone back to the stairs. Listen, folks, of course we're heartbroken when we fail. But stay on the elevator of mercy. He is consistently there. It's all because of him. And just pour out love and appreciation and adoration. Folks, the first Christmas was messy. It was in a barn. It smelled. It was noisy. It was not very hygienic. The death of Jesus was worse. It was horrific. It was painful. It was messy. It was bloody. It was not attractive. Grace is free, but it didn't come cheap. And today, we get to unwrap the first gift of God's grace under the tree, his unfailing, unmerited favor pouring out over the floodgates full of grace and truth. Let's pray together and receive that today. God, we come in the name of your son, Jesus who is the one who came to express who you are perfectly and truly so we could see you poured out his life on a bloody death on a cross, came back to life by the power of your Holy Spirit to forgive us in grace and to baptize us with your spirit in power so we can live your life. God, today we pray this simple prayer. God, I've sinned and I am a sinner. I receive your forgiveness in grace, Lord Jesus Christ. Come and cleanse my life and not only give me a clean slate and a fresh start, but fill me with your spirit. Baptize me with your spirit. Fill me up to overflowing with the power of your life and spirit so that I can be a transformed child of God. Help me live every day of my life and for the rest of all eternity following you. I receive your gift of grace. God, today for some of us, our repentance, our turning around is because we we try to play two games. One's called stairs and the other is called elevator. And somehow we intellectually know that it's only by grace, but There's so much religious residue and pride left in us that sometimes we think that we kind of now go back to merit. Oh God, help us have an overpowering love to please and serve and obey you without that ever being dirty or tainted by our somehow meriting grace. That's our prayer, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.